Hey, everybody, it's American Scuttlebutt, the amazing U.S. History EOC podcast brought to you right here in the great state of Florida. And we're here today to talk about World War II. If you remember, I'm Miss Udine. Of course, always with me is Miss V. Where are you, Miss V? Hey, I'm right here. Hi, how's everything been going, Miss V? Great. It's been awesome. I'm so excited to talk about World War II. Yes. Before we talked about uh, 1920s, we talked about the Great Depression, and now we're ready for World War II. I hear you may have a little story for us. I always do. You always have a great story. You've well-researched. Uh, what do you got today for World War II? Today, we're going to be talking about Fred Korematsu and the very important court case of Korematsu versus the United States. Um, on the EOC, it tends to focus on the home front, which is what's happening to the American population during World War II, not so much um, the actual battles and things like that. So my story is about Mr. Fred Korematsu. He was born in 1919 to parents who were immigrants. They immigrated from Japan, and he spent most of his life growing up in California. Now, when he talks about his life, he mentions that he faced a lot of discrimination growing up in California, uh, especially in employment. Uh, if you recall, Mr. D, there was a law that the U.S. passed yes. back in the 1880s. Yes. That had to do with discriminating against certain Asian immigrants. Do you remember where they were from? Asian immigrants. I remember them being from specifically uh, the island of Japan. No. No. <laughs> In the 1880s. Oh, 1880s. Yeah. Well, so mm -hmm. we got Japanese. Uh, let's see. Let's see. Uh, China. 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 Right, the Chinese Exclusion Act. Right. So we know that there's this history, this longstanding history of Asian immigrants specifically being discriminated against in places like California, which are on the West Coast. They share that um, coastline with the Asian countries in the Pacific. So he notes that he grew up facing discrimination his entire life. And once World War II started, it started to get even worse because even though the U.S. was not at war yet, um, people were still looking at Japan in a very negative light. And of course, the event that changes his life and the life of many Americans is December 7th, 1941. What happens? <gasps> Pearl Harbor. Pearl Harbor. Pearl Harbor the attack. Yes, the attacks. That takes place in Hawaii. And, uh, you know, 2,000 Americans die in that attack. And it was Japan that did it. Um, they took full responsibility for it. They did it. We go to war with Japan. And Fred Korematsu mentions um, when he talks about this and when he writes about it that things got significantly worse for him after World War II, just as far as like social interactions and employment and things like that. So much so that in 1942, he attempts to get plastic surgery. What? To change his eyelids. To make himself look more. I guess more like a Caucasian, Caucasian person. Caucasian, right. So um, he often told people that he was Spanish or Hawaiian as an attempt to not be as discriminated against. Um, but, yeah, he really, like, really wanted to get out of this. And so shortly after that, we know that President FDR is going to issue Executive Order 9066, which set up internment camps governed by the military um, and so basically moving the Japanese population on the West Coast, so that's largely California, 
places near there, um, moving them internally into the internal part of the country away from the coastline. Um, You know, you can bring a suitcase, but leave everything else behind. We're going to keep you in this camp. Right. Not to be confused with a concentration camp, as many do. What's the difference, Mr. D, between a concentration camp and an internment camp? Well, uh, let's see. Internment means work, work camp. So people brought everything that they had or could take from home and were moved. And a lot of times they were moved as far away from the coast as possible, as far as Wyoming. So some of these people are moving 1,500 miles away. And so they're uh, contained or quarantined in a concentration camp. They're being kept for work as well, but their their rights are being taken away, meaning they are being forced to work. They're being uh, fed. And eventually, in, in, at least in Germany, there was the um, final solution to exterminate the Jews. Here, the Japanese uh, were being held against their will, their civil liberties, because it felt that the United States felt that them being quarantined was more important than their right to freedom and liberty. Um, they weren't arrested, but they were being kept away from the rest of the population. Right. And so death wasn't like the outcome that they were no. looking for, the way we see with like the Nazi concentration right. camps. They had things to do. So they're, you know, they're locked up. There's uh, fences, there's armed guards. You worked in the camp. So, you know, maybe you were a doctor in the real world, but at the constant or at the internment camp, you know, you could have been the internment camp doctor or you could have been like, a cafeteria worker. They right. still need people to work and do things and there were little schools set up too. So it was kind of like, almost like a refugee camp, I think of in a way. Right. So um, this executive executive order gets issued and Fred Korematsu is like, absolutely not. I'm not going. He dodges it. And he does. He gets arrested for it because they're like, yo, we said you are supposed to go and he refused to go. Of course... The ACLU, the American Civil Liberties Union, wants to challenge this. Sure. They always do. Um, I think they brought the Scopes trial. That was one of our episodes that we discussed the Scopes trial, and they were involved in that. So they need to find somebody who's going to sue the United States, and they get in contact with Fred Korematsu, and he's the guy who's going to go for it. So uh, it does go to the Supreme Court. Korematsu versus the U.S., 1944. The Supreme Court rules in favor of... Who do you think? Uh, I think he they're against Korematsu. It, it was they it, are six to three decision. They agree with the government. They're against Fred Korematsu. Um, of course, he's arguing that it violates his rights, specifically the Fifth Amendment, which due process. Get in, yeah, that's that's because you know when I think of Fifth Amendment, I'm thinking of like double jeopardy and self incrimination. Right. Um, but yeah, due process. The Supreme Court Justice, Justice Black, who um, decides this decision. Is this Harlan Black? No. No. Okay. It's a different Is it? I don't, I don't know which. <laughs> Harlan Black, I think, was back in uh, uh, Plessy versus Ferguson. There's no way. There's too could many be, justices. There's could, too many of them. Okay. <laughs> um, he says that, and this is like an exact quote. He says, Korematsu was not excluded from the military area because of hostility to him and his race. He was excluded because we were at war with the Japanese Empire because military authorities feared an invasion of our West Coast. So really the fear was, one, that the Japanese people were going to be spies um, or that they were going to be signaling submarines off the Pacific Coast because, you know, Japan's in the Pacific as well, that they would somehow have contact with family back home, even though a lot of these people were born in the U.S. Like Korematsu, um, he was not an immigrant. His parents were, but he was not. 
Um, but the justices felt that, you know, the military was fearful and that the military could um, override this. So they said, yeah, they're afraid of an invasion. It's, you know, a time of war. So you can put these people in internment camps, you know, interrupt their lives and set them away. So this is sad. It's a sad story for a lot of Japanese people because when they come back from the internment camps, um, their businesses had been taken over. Their homes, in some cases, had been taken over. They had lost a lot of their possessions. Um, and they really had to start all over again. And they weren't trusted by the people in their own country and their own government. So when the war ends, um, those people got to go back home. What's interesting, though, is that this court case was not overturned until... Want to take a guess? Is it the 1980s? It is the 80s. It's 1983. 83, Ronald Reagan. Yes, Ronald Reagan. It's That's when it's overturned, 1983. Um, and in 1988, Ronald Reagan passes the Civil Liberties Act, which formally apologized to the Japanese people who were interred and um, gave payment to the families of about $20,000, which today... It's a little over $40,000, which I don't know if that's enough for being locked up by your own government. I don't know. Do you think you can pay anyone enough for that? Never enough. I mean, at the time. And it's also almost 40 years later. Sure. Seems like too little too late. Probably. Uh, But... uh, (laughs) But at the t- at the time, certainly they, they felt that it was very important because, you know, but think about it. I mean, these are Japanese Americans that are being uh, taken away because of their um, the actions of Japan. And many of these Japanese Americans were, are really uh, Americans first. Uh, they were born here. Um, but the same thing didn't happen to German Americans. Same thing didn't happen to Italian Americans. Right. Um, v- very different. Well, and the government's argument was these Japanese Americans are so close to the coastline where the Japanese would, you know, in theory be, um, you know, have their submarines sure. coming up here. Right. Um, but yeah, it was definitely discrimination. Uh, in 2011, it was denounced by the government because what they found is that there were reports on how the Japanese, you know, most likely were not spying or signaling subs. And these reports were not disclosed by the government when they went to court. They just ignored them and didn't bring them as evidence. Uh, so it was very, very sketchy. But it's not over. This actually came up again as the basis for another Supreme Court decision in 2018. Really? It was Trump versus Hawaii. So I know I was like, I didn't didn't even realize this. Um, So if you remember recently in history, uh, 2018, around then, um, the government passed like a travel ban from various countries. Um, Certain people couldn't travel in in and out of the country. Uh, A bunch of states sued Hawaii being one of them, um, sued the Trump administration. And when the justices sided with Hawaii, they used Korematsu versus the U.S. as one of their examples of... um, felt the Supreme Court was wrong in their decisions involving, you know, people who were foreigners or who were immigrants. So history always comes back into modern times. And there we go. Um, Fred Korematsu's daughter said that he almost never discussed it. She did not even know that he was in this landmark Supreme Court case until she was an adult woman. Hmm. Um, She read about it in a textbook. I think it was high school or college. Interesting. She had no idea. Her father didn't discuss it because he felt personally responsible for the failure. Um, He felt like he should have been the one to help get this law overturned, this executive order, 
and he was unsuccessful. So he didn't discuss it at all. Um, but of course, he was honored later, later on, as we talked about, like in the 80s and things like that. Right. And that's the story of Korematsu versus the United States, abridged, of course. A bridge, but so, so much information to give us the context of World War II, what's happening, uh, why we got involved in the war, what happened afterwards as far as civil rights, civil liberties, and a very important court case for our students to know for the U.S. History EOC, and uh, uh, in multiple decades, certainly. Thank mm-hmm. you. Thank you so much, Ms. V. You're welcome. And you know what that means. It's time for my favorite part. <laughs> Your it's favorite? history crush time. History crush time this week. We have a history crush where Miss V is going to try and guess who I've chosen as our history crush. Who are we crushing on this week? Okay, so it's War Two, right? Yes. Okay, so it's War Two. So. Uh, let's tell everybody uh, real quick. I'm going to give you three clues. They're going to get, uh, uh, they're broad to specific. They're about World War II. That's all you know. And it's it's a person's name. It, could it be a thing? Or have we done things before? Or time periods? This is a person, right? What? History Crush is a person. Always a person. Okay. <laughs> I'll make sure. This is still a person. I just want to make sure you understand. This is still a person. Uh, okay. I'm already, you know, <laughs> suspicious of this. All right. This is very sus. All right. Listen up. Here we go. <laughs> this, let's see who who my history crush is this week. This person inspired a multi-billion dollar effort, and it wasn't even in the United States, even though this is U.S. history. A, a multi-billion dollar effort? Yes. And it was not even For in the United what? States. I, I can't tell you that. <sighs> okay, a multi-billion dollar effort. Um... You're saying it's during World War II, in the general time period of World War II. Now, in our time period, of World War II, usually when we teach World War II, this is usually what, like 1932, when Hitler comes to power. Is that when he comes to power? About 32, mm-hmm. or when the Nazis start rising to about, I don't know, 1960 after the Cold War kind of thing. Wow, that's a long time period. I'm but just, okay. I, but but this person is associated with World War II. Yes. Okay, it was associated with World War II, raising money. Raising money, and it wasn't even for the United States. Mm-hmm. It's a person. I, th- I, I think I have an idea here, but I think I need to hear the other clue. Because Are you that's sure a very, you... That's a very vague clue, and I, I want to be certain. You don't want to think it out? You don't want to talk it out like the students No, would, because the only way I can explain it right. is if I hear I have to hear the second clue, and then I'll tell y'all. Okay. Okay. This is now. This is for the students. This is going to be. A, the, you're going to get this right away. I have okay. a feeling. All right. But I'm going to say what I wrote down. The plan was to really to help to stop the spread of communism. George Marshall. George, is that his name? George. George Marshall. John. Is, no. Stop. George Marshall is correct. <laughs> okay. George so that's what C. I was Marshall. First. First. Um, the Marshall Plan. Yes. <laughs> he was Secretary of State, right, I believe? Yes. Um, right. So giving billion dollars to other countries, European countries, to, to one, help them rebuild their economies, but two, more importantly and more secretly, covertly almost, is to keep them away from communism. Yes. Because economies that are healthy and functioning aren't tempted by communism. Right. 
Supposedly. Keep spending money. You got to have money going out so everyone can uh, enjoy the benefits to create entrepreneurship and to create jobs. It truly helped. It did help the European countries recover. But I believe that the Soviet Union and several of the other countries, uh, satellite states, refused the money. Right. Because we did offer it to them. Yes. So, you know, and look what happened. Didn't they have their own plan? They had their own plan, didn't they? Yeah, but we did. I, I think, if I'm thinking correctly, we did offer them the money. So, yeah, the Marshall Plan helped rebuild Europe, helped vitalize their economies, um, really helped us in the end because we were trading partners with them and very interdependent now after World War II. All the countries are very interdependent on each other. So, yeah, that was good. That was a good one. What's the last clue? Oh, yeah, last clue was um, and rebuild after the war. So it was to give you an idea yeah. that they spread communism, right, it was one part, but to rebuild after the war. $15 billion in reconstruction for cities and infrastructure. Uh, innovate, develop, um, to create and spread democracy in capitalistic markets. Uh, many see this as the start, really, of the Cold War in post-war to America and the catalyst for NATO, because like you said, the uh, Soviet mm-hmm. countries are going to get together and create their own, um, uh, uh, kind of ca- carve out their own part of Europe, uh, and they're going to help facilitate each other on that side. And then the United States and NATO and and the Marshall Plan will will create its own capitalistic side in Europe. So um, that's it. That's That's what we see for the... History crush George C. Marshall and his plan as Secretary of State after World War or after World War II, like during World War II, but then after certainly. Why are you emphasizing the C? What the I, I don't I don't, <laughs> I don't know. I just wondered if there was a reason for this. No he's re- really wanted to tell me it was George C. Marshall. George C. Marshall. I don't know why. I just find it fascinating. George C. Because maybe because the act. Do you know the actor George C. Scott? There's no way you do. Do you? No. Okay, George C. Scott was an actor. He was in Doctor Strangelove. He was also in uh, Patton, which is a World War II movie as well. He played oh. Patton. So he's that guy. Anyway, for the, our students here listening, uh, this might be ridiculous. But hey, that's two good movies right there, uh, Doctor Strangelove and Patton. Uh, you don't have to watch those for the EOC, though. Um, yeah, are they PG-13 or below? Um, yeah, they, yeah, PG, sure. Yeah, Patton is PG, for sure. Okay. It's a good, Just good checking. Old- you know, we got like... You know, seventeen-year-olds listening to this. I know, so they're fine, and and a- any age can watch either one of those films. But that's our history crush for this week. Great job, Miss V. You got it in two shots. Thank you. you I, I know. I see the glimmer in your eye. You could have got it in one. You could have just said it right away. But you know, you you wanted to be sure, and that's excellent. Just like our students, they should take their time on the test, look mm-hmm. at all the choices, eliminate, and then go back. What a great model, great example. <laughs> And you know what that means. Now it's time for Florida Fru-Fru. Right. What is Fru-Fru, Ms. V? Florida Fru-Fru is a little bit extra we throw in at the end because the EOC also covers Florida history. That's right. Um, and so we always got to contextualize Florida, what's happening in Florida in whatever time period we're talking about, which in this case is World War II. And Mr. D, you have that little tidbit for us. I do. I've got the little extra. I've got the little tidbit. I was looking at it and I was like, you know, this is really where the population of Florida increases uh, after World War II because, of course, we know that we've got so much uh, of the sea coastline and uh, we've got uh, military bases that are going to come in. Those military bases are going to be filled with, you know, GIs. You told me about GIs and what was, was it? General products? Is that what it was? What was what did the P stand for? Oh, for man. Jeep? Remember this? Yes, what Jeep stood for. Yeah, Jeep was, I think it was General Product? Was that Something it? like that. Something I got to like think that. about it. It'll come to me while you're telling right, your right. frou-frou.
But for the frou frou, uh, we start with 1939, and Florida's population at that point is less than two million. So I'm focusing here on Florida bases. You know, uh, the military comes here. Uh, the bases are um, important because the, a lot of the populations around the coast, you have a lot of light, and so the bases are going to be there. And propaganda is going to be there in order to tell the people and to calm them down during during these high times of worry and concern that submarines from the Germans and, and the Italians and the Japanese might attack them to, to stop their light, to, to quiet, uh, the you know, shut the lights off kind of thing. And so uh, because then the, mil- the submarines can see us. And so the military bases will be there at least to help. In 1939, like I said, the population is about two million. And uh, there's an increase in military bases. Well, those bases are going to bring in a lot of economic growth um, after the Great Depression. Uh, land is going to be chosen, uh, and, and some of it is going to have African-American families uh, actually being displaced because the, they were on cheaper land. So many of our African-American families wind up being moved uh, because of the bases. One of the important bases is the Pensacola National uh, Naval Station Base, and this is uh, one of the most important ones. Another one, hours close by in Tampa, is in 1939 McDill Air Force Base, which currently is the air command for the Middle East. After World War II, the population of Miami is going to double because of the military families and military bases. Uh, Florida is going to certainly contribute. The population increases, and you can have an increase in citrus production at this point. And we're, at this point, we're going to surpass California for orange production. Uh, and also in Florida, we're going to create DDT. It's a development oh. for pesticides, which is going to increase and help out us. You know, that, we don't use that anymore, but it's a fertilizer and a pesticide to kill the bugs to make sure that you know we have plenty of food for the increasing population. Um, you're going to have um, nine. Th- this I found this fascinating. Nine thousand boats are going to be created and built in one location, Orlando. Like, really? Like, yes. Not even near the water. <laughs> no, landlocked boats. There was lots of jobs in Orlando because of the, uh, uh, the, the how central it was to the rest of the state and the and the other bases. Um, Florida's population. Makes sense, then. Yeah. In 1940s, Florida's population is going to grow, uh, uh, increase 46%. You're going to have uh, over 200 military bases being built and jobs. Uh, Miami native Alice Martha Dorn is the first female officer candidate in the Marine Corps out of Florida. And she worked for women's recruiting. Again, Alice Dorn. I found that uh, very interesting. Uh, you had This is after World War II? This is during World War II. Yeah, okay. this, this is during it. Uh, yeah, she's an officer in the Marines. Camp Blanding in Stark, Florida, becomes Florida's fourth largest city in World War II. Uh, and they're primarily going to be there for uh, basic training for uh, military, you know, our military folks. And it's also going to house over 4,000 German uh, prisoners of war are going to be shipped to Florida to stay in flight. I, I didn't know any of this. We had that, that many POWs here in Florida. That's crazy. Yeah, as far as uh, sunshine or uh, submarine concerns, again, I talked about shutting off your lights and uh, the population being so high in that area. Specifically, you can have training uh, happening here in Tampa. One was close by by USF, right across the street from USF, was a training uh, uh, to land planes and, 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 and fly planes, uh, that kind of thing. The Keys, Miami, and Daytona were all places that increased in population in the 1950s. Uh, one of them, our alma mater, uh, uh, USF, is going to be built as a because of post-World War II in the 1950s. So that is the fruit for the extra above and beyond the sto- great story by Miss V, the wonderful history crust that Miss V got correct. This is the extra for Florida, Florida bases. Uh, and again, like I said, uh, 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 Pensacola all the way to the Keys, population increases, 
There's the extra, Ms. V. That was good. Very interesting. I learned a lot about, uh, you know, the military bases and all that. Thank you very much. Did you find that about the Jeep thing? It's um, general purpose, purpose vehicle. General purpose vehicle. Excellent. General purpose. And so a GP, and they just called it the Jeep. The Jeep. Yep. Mine. That's how it Same. I, Supposedly, that's what I heard. That's what you heard. I, I use mine heard for a lot of different... The streets. <laughs> the history streets. <laughs> the history streets. <laughs> What's, uh, what's the next uh, topic we've got, Miss V? Do you remember? Well, the next topic is going to be early Cold War. So we'll be talking about the 1950s. Or we may just do a 1950s culture one. It depends how we feel. They're happening simultaneously. So, you know, you and me, Mr. D, we got to make that decision. Yes, we'll make that decision. Um, and wow, we're, it's going to go so fast after this. We have so much history, but so little history. Right, very condensed time period. But the U.S. EOC has a lot of information from this point on. Uh, a lot of things coming up. So, you know, we're going to look at the 1950s, the 60s. We're going to look at uh, civil rights, Vietnam, 1980s, uh, war on terror. We have so many things to take a look at. Uh, so much for you people to uh, wait for, listen for, and get ready for amazing U.S. history. Brought to you by Miss V, Mr. D. And that's all for us. Good luck. Keep studying. And this has been American Scuttlebutt. Thanks, Ms. V. Bye. Bye.